And so I do deals all over the country, and we're just a high-risk, high-reward kind of elite specialist company. We'd like to call ourselves the, the SEAL Team 6 of real estate. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I hope you are well and your projects are chugging ahead. I am fine. Got another awesome conversation coming up about selling property from someone who markets hard to sell real estate, including the story of how he sold a ranch for a billion dollars. That's right, B for billion. So I'm sure you will enjoy his tips and ideas. Seems I have a bit of a series developing around billion dollar property stories. Hopefully yours is one in the making and we can talk about it in the future. Before we get to today's guest, here's what I've been up to lately. On my project going through planning, we managed to clear up the confusion around the status of our application, and the proposal is currently at the public notice stage. So I'm waiting to see what sort of reaction we get from the locals. On my other project, we are working through the engineering drawings and other consultant reports for the construction documentation. So everything is slowly moving along. And just quickly, before we get to today's guest, if you want to learn how to develop property safely and successfully, then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, about the mentoring program that is available to help you get started on your development career. Okay, on to our guest, real estate agent Bernard Utrich. Bernie is an Aussie who's based in Dallas, Texas, and he's forged a reputation selling unique, hard to sell, and high value property. With his largest transaction, a ranch in Texas valued at around $1 billion Australian dollars. That's a B for billion. I was keen to speak with Bernie to find out how you go about marketing and selling a property with such a high value. Bernie has sold some amazing real estate over the years, including an infamous property where a family murder took place. And I'm sure you will enjoy his insights into some of the key tactical activities he employs. What is different about selling high-end property and what developers should think about when marketing their projects? Keep an ear out for the groundwork that Bernie puts in before he even has the authority to sell a property. Interestingly enough, Bernie and me also share a history of growing up in Papua New Guinea. So his response to my opening question about what he would eat until he was sick brought a big smile to my face. Solely plums. <laughs> 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 oh, there you go. I'm, yes, I too have a, uh, a a secret love of salted plums, and just had some not that long ago. So uh, <laughs> that'd be our right. that'd be our PNG connection coming through there. Yeah, that's right. And uh, have you eaten any lately? Um, I have, as a matter of fact. I have a a few places over here where I can go and get them. I was going to so, say, uh, I wouldn't have thought yeah. there'd be too many places in uh, Dallas, Texas that stock salted plums. No, but I found them, so that's all good. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's a unique answer so far on my show. <laughs> yeah, well, anybody from New Guinea will be able to relate. Well, that's a good uh, segue into, I guess, your history and the reason we're talking today is around yep. uh, selling property and you're a, a gun property salesperson who's probably 
done one of the biggest transactions I'm aware of, which would be a, a billion-dollar Australian property transaction, which we'll get to. Um, but can you give us a bit of your history? Of, there's obviously a P&G connection there that you and I both share, but can you give us a bit of a background about yourself and how you got into selling property? So I was, um, I was raised in Papua New Guinea, went to school there. Then I went to a series of boarding schools after that in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, went to Longreach Ag College, um, which did absolutely nothing towards my real estate career, but I could shear a sheep <laughs> or, butcher, or butcher a beast by the time I left. Um, I came to America in 1989, uh, and I came to through Kentucky, um, ended up I was there for four years, um, began playing polo, ended up in Southern California playing polo. And at that time, I got into, got my real estate license uh, in 1993 and, um, and started my real estate career in Southern California. And it was mostly built, it was at the time that the market was uh, at, a, at, a, at rock bottom. And, um, and I started sort of in the luxury marketplace. I represented a lot of banks around the country yet were foreclosing on on homes and and uh, and taking back a lot of inventory and so I, I sort of really cut my teeth on that and then uh, early in my career I sold a a uh, what we call a stigmatized property it was for the Menendez brothers who had killed their parents and um, it had been on the market for about five years they were unable to sell it I came up with a plan I sold it and that sort of led to my sort of being involved in hard to do difficult sales right unique sales and the next thing i did was uh, i was engaged to to uh appraise and evaluate the oj simpson and and nicole simpson estates and uh, i did that i didn't sell them but i was involved in sort of um resolving them and um and that really led to a career of sort of like i said hard hard to do unique real estate and i did that i continued that in southern california up until 2004 and during that time um i i had a chain of remax um companies initially franchises uh, i had 12 franchise areas and two offices sold those uh did another company called uh, Frontgate realty which was predominantly a luxury uh market sort of brentwood um, Hidden Hills, Calabasas, Malibu area, and uh, did well with that. I was very lucky. Um, got involved in some development in Southern California, and then in 2004, moved to Texas. And when I moved to Texas, um, I'd, I'd bought a, a failed television company and sort of tried to turn it around and, um, and got back into real estate. And I got back into sort of ranching, which is my background. So, because I'm originally from plantations and cattle and and uh, horses, so I started that in 2000 and um, I guess really 06. Um, then again, I sort of fell into these sort of hard to do properties, um, and and I have since then built a business around just that. So, what I do is I sell difficult, unique, one-of-one type properties, mostly ranches, uh, but not exclusively ranches. I, I do industrial, commercial, anything that's really hard to sell. It might be years in litigation, uh, estate dissolution, uh, failed developments, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I kind of own that marketplace in, in America, really, 
um, but certainly taxes. And um, and so I do deals all over the country, and um, and we're just a high risk, high reward kind of elite specialist company. We'd like to call ourselves the the SEAL Team Six of real estate. So people come to us with a with a uh, proposition or a difficult deal. I figure out how to do it. I figure out what the rules are going to be, what the campaign is going to look like, what it is, how to position it in the marketplace, who the potential buyers may or may not be, whether it's a state buyer, a national buyer or an international buyer. And, and um, we sort of pride ourselves on having really uh, solid international and, and national campaigns and doing things on a on a sort of compressed timeline, right? So a lot of people in real estate, as you know, list a property, put a sign up and hope they get in the way of a deal. Um, my philosophy is that every property has a story or stories to tell. So tell those stories, design a campaign around those stories and take the campaign to the market in the best way and the best places that you can as fast as you can. Um, so there's no one size fits all. Everything has, you know, uh, there's no two properties that are the same in my marketplace. And my marketplace is generally, you know, 20 million, 30 million, 50 million, 100, 250 million dollars. Certainly I've done some higher, but generally speaking, that's the range of what I do. And it's slightly different in the US, isn't it, when you're marketing or selling property and that the selling agent takes on the costs for the marketing, is that correct? Yeah, for the most part. Traditionally, that's the way it's done. Um, at my level, a lot of my clients have skin in the game. Um, it's part of my contract. Um, and if for whatever reason they make the property unavailable um, or they decide to uh, be difficult to deal with or they decide they want to take it off the market, you know, there's a fairly hefty penalty for that. Um, and what is it you think attracts you to those difficult-to-sell properties? Uh, well, I've always been a, a kid that's had a great fear of failure. You know, um, at the at the end of the day, I'm a I'm a very um, I'm an uneducated kid from New Guinea. I'm a Queensland boy uh, that grew up in a family of you know ten children. Uh, I'm the eighth, um, and uh, you know, sort of the survival of the fittest. And um, and so I've always, because of my education and my upbringing or lack thereof. Uh, I've always sort of been an against the grain underdog type of person and um, you know my track record at a series of boarding schools for not sort of staying between the lines is a bit of a giveaway for that <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I tend to like to make my own rules so uh, and I've been able to you know be fortunate and parlay that into a um, you know uh, a rewarding career and so what when you're talking about doing a campaign for a hard-to-sell property or for real estate, yep. what, and you talk about telling a story, I mean, for, how does that work? I mean, for example, the one where you had the property that it had a murder in it, what, I'm guessing the murder is a part of the story, or is it? Well, yeah, not so much in those cases because they're pretty, um, you know, they're pretty negative stories. So what you've got to figure out is, you know, when I say stories, you've got to figure out it's really positioning. So when you don't have a big negative connotation, such as a, a death or a murder or whatever with it, um, then, you know, you, you roll it out one way. If you do have that sort of connotation with it or that stigma with it is, the you know, most real estate agents try and sort of sidestep that or 
you know, not talk about it or whatever. I'm, I'm very much a believer in transparency. Um, and I believe that at the end of the day, as good as I am or as good as any agent is, at the end of the day, properties sell themselves, right? And uh, I've got a great saying. It, the property market is like the car market. There's an ask for every seat. So uh, that means that, you know, my job as a broker is to is to create a to cast a wide net in a in a marketing and advertising campaign and create a competitive marketing environment that's uh, you know induces people into the process and is conducive to selling a property as fast as as practical. Um, most of my campaigns are designed around a twelve to a fifteen month soup to nuts close. Traditionally, ranches. In Texas and largely in America, the thinking used to be, and still is, not in my company, but in others, that you know, well, we'll put it on the market and let's hope that in two or three or four years we'll get it sold. I don't have that kind of time, so I design campaigns that that are intentionally compressed and designed to you know hit a peak within a certain period of time, go through the negotiating process in a certain period of time, and then close thereafter. Um, because once you expose a property to the open market, there's a sort of a 90 to 120 day period. Whereas if I do my job right and I've built the right campaign and I've, and I've put the right sort of marketing out there, that's, there's a peak of interest level, right? In the marketplace. So if you cast a net and you go to the four corners of the world or the four corners of the state or the four corners of the nation, whatever it is, um, that's when, that's when the fever pitch is. So in that pool of interest is your buyer or your buyers. And so you sort of narrow it down there. It's sort of like getting all the cats in a room, herding the cats, you know, um, catch one by the tail and hang on. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you're – can you talk us through the campaign development? Like what, what sort of tactical activities are you thinking about or is there go-to things that you just immediately put in your campaign like a – a video or press or how does that work? Yeah, so if you so if you go to uh, to my my website icon global, um, you'll see you'll see a whole series of videos. I think videos are a really integral part of selling the type of property that I do. But again, there's no one size fits all. Um, every property is different. It, you know, uh, it's pluses and minuses are different. Some of them have revenue streams. Some of them don't. Um, some of them have oil and gas, you know, some of them have minerals of other kinds, uh, some of them have water rights, wind rights, um, you know, all sorts of things now. So they're all different. And so you have to build, as I say, a custom campaign ar- around that. So generally what I'll do, you know, with differences, but generally what I'll do is I'll spend anywhere from 60 to 90, even 120 days figuring out, doing my due diligence. And in that time, I'll learn all about the property. I'll, I'll learn all about the sellers. I'll learn all about the dynamics surrounding it. Um, I'll put together all the information, um, you know, surveys, plat maps, uh, figure out what the oil and gas and mineral situ- situation is, what the ownership is, you know, all of that kind of thing. Livestock, cash flow, you know, negatives, positives, water, uh, wind, you know, all of that sort of thing. 
and we'll build a data room. So we'll have two data rooms. We'll have an electronic data room and we'll have a physical data room. Is that the same uh-huh. as a, is that the same as a data room? Yeah, yeah, same as a data room, man. <laughs> so, um, and uh, so I'll build that. Then I will then I will send sort of a teaser out to all my sort of AAA clients and AAA contacts around the world. So I've I've probably got the largest database of um, sort of high net worth buyers. Uh, and clientele uh, in the world, probably. Um, I can and, imagine that's quite a colourful list that you've got. Yeah, Bernie. it's a big cast of characters, and um, but I've developed that over thirty years, you know. Um, so, and I've also been associated over that time with some fairly big companies that um, have have added to the depth of that um, that data re- data list. So, it'll go out to them. Then I'll go out to, and I'll get sort of 15 to 30 days heads up, hey, this is coming soon, wanted you to be the first to know. Then we'll go out to all the A-level brokers. Um, then I'll do a mainstream, I'll, I'll generally do a mainstream media campaign. So I've developed, again, over the years, you know, a pretty good list of of journalists um, from Bloomberg News and CNN and Fox Business and and the Dallas Morning News and the LA Times and, you know, just all the big newspapers, right, mainstream media, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Uh, and I've cultivated those contacts over the years. And so I make a journalist's job easy. I give them, you know, give them the content. I give them great pictures. I give them great video. They run with a story. Um, I, put the, I put the stories together. Um, give them the bullet points. I'll do a press release. Uh, but again, I'll give preferred journalists a preferred first look. Then I'll go with a, a, you know, a statewide or a nationwide or a worldwide press release, depending on what the property is. And and so that's what you, you're generating. It, there's a build, right? There's a build of awareness. Um, from the time we go mainstream and we go public, that's when you have about if you do your job right, you have sort of 90 to 120 days where the property becomes at its highest level of interest because after that, the needle starts to drop off. Yeah. Now, during that campaign, depending on outside influences, maybe oil prices or maybe housing market or something in the economy, things that you can't control within the context of your campaign, that might change. So that which might impact what you're doing. So you have to be what I call fleet of foot. You have to be ready to pivot uh, and go to plan B or take this tactic or that tact, right? Um, so again, not a one size fits all. And people often ask me, hey, what's the formula? You know, and the formula is that it's a um, that it's uh, it's secret soup every time. You know, there's no there's no one size fits all. And I, I mean, I have to ask you about the. The big transaction that you did this, I think it was seven hundred and fifty million US dollars. So roughly yeah, about it. Yeah, roughly yeah, about a billion Aussie dollars. Right. That's that's a big transaction. It was a good day, and it was <laughs> uh, it was well earned. That so there there's a great example of a process. You know, I was working for about a year undercover. Um, it was a very large uh, legacy estate belonging to a big legacy family, uh, 535,000 acres, all under one fence, had a farming component, had a cattle component, horse component, uh, water component. And um, 
it had been in litigation literally for about 25 years when I came along. And so my job was to figure out a way to help these attorneys and judges give them an exit strategy and an exit strategy that everybody could feel comfortable with and trust. Um, and um, that was a lot of work. We sold that property um, in, and closed it in about 15 months. I launched the, I went public with the campaign in August of uh, 2014. Um, I had it sold. Uh, I did a call for offers and had it sold in October of 2015. We had four finalists from around the world, uh, ultra high net worth people. Um, and we kept that undercover and we announced the sale and closed it in February of 2016. And I think you were quite strategic in the work that you did prior to the listing in that you were attending the court hearings, you were, you were doing a lot of ground laying to try and yeah, secure, the, secure the, the, the project. Yeah, so there was, a lot of, there was a lot of work involved because, you know, with a big deal like that, you have, you know, it's been out there for years. There's a lot of competing interests. Um, there was a receiver involved. And there was two families involved primarily. So you had the receiver in the court who had their agenda. And then you had each side of these families that had their own agendas. And with those agendas comes the likes and dislikes and preferences of, you know, who are they going to use and how are they going to get it sold? And maybe some of them don't even want to sell it, right? So there's a lot of that. So as George Bush likes to say, you know, there's a lot of strategy involved. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, so, um, you know, some of that strategy involved me, you know, having meetings at, you know, two o'clock in the morning in, in dark places with, with uh, different people and, and a lot of, lot of lead-up work, you know, a lot of convincing, a lot of private meetings, a lot of convincing people, um, you know, that I was a guy they could trust. Um, in some cases, I was, you know, known, and in other cases, I was really unknown, right? And so when you talk about coming up with a story for a property like that what what was your angle or what were you what did you come up with what were you thinking yeah so that one was pretty easy actually you know um um firstly i'm a i'm a very emotional passionate kind of a guy so and i'm very passionate about what i do and so i looked at this property it had been in litigation for 25 years it was a it was a an iconic you know, American cowboy story, um, and with all of the with all of the associations that go with that, you know, um, its rise to fame. Uh, this is a property that that used to produce oil that actually fueled, you know, uh, during World War Two. You know, some of the the Asia Pacific campaign. Um, there, there were families, generations of families, about 120 families that had worked, lived, loved, died, married. On this, on this ranch, had given their lives to this ranch. Some of their kids had gone away to war. Some of them had come back. Some of them hadn't come back. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of that. So a lot of my campaign focused around the iconic legacy of this ranch, one. And two, it focused around it was my goal to keep this ranch together. Some of the, some of the other contenders um, 
were talking about cutting it up into ranchettes and 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 dividing it up and doing all of this stuff. I made it very clear publicly and I went out on a limb, high risk, high reward, obviously is what I do, but I, I sort of made a vow to the people and the families that I would keep it together as one. And then I would, or at least I would do my level best to do that. You know, you never know, you don't know what you don't know when you when you start a campaign. Um, but I think if you if you used use the principles of transparency and integrity and uh, morality and all of that stuff, um, if you incorporate those into a campaign where everybody can see you and touch you and, and feel you and know who you are and what you're doing, you're not just a slick sales guy. Um, because at the end of the day, the sales result, the dollar amount, the money part, that won't change. Right, and the fact that it's going to be on the market and it's going to be sold—that that's not going to change either. How you get there, you can control that, you know. So if you get there with transparency and integrity and a common sense approach, um, you know, I spent time listening to, and, and a lot of time uh, listening to a, you know, a seventy-seven-year-old African American uh, cleaner that had been there since he was a boy. Um, and it was he and I alone in the headquarters building, you know, for months. Um, I stayed in an apartment in the in the headquarters building for, for months as I was doing my workup. And uh, I spent a lot of time with him. I learned a lot about the history. I learned a lot about the families. I listened to the stories. And when you take on a project like that, it's all about you've got to be a great listener, you know, and find the nuggets and find the anecdotal pieces um, of, of what's important to those people. And if you can... If you can embrace that and if you can incorporate that into your campaign, um, that's a good thing, you know, because people like to be heard, um, especially when you've got two ultra wealthy families that have fought for 25 years over whose ranch it's going to be or not going to be. And then you have, you know, 120 something employees who've lived under that cloud for that time. And they've seen a lot of suspicious characters come and go, right? And so I made it a point at the beginning of that campaign to not be a suspicious character. It helps that I'm different. Uh, I look different. I sound different. I'm from a different country. Um, it helps that I can that I can talk cow and I can talk horse and I can talk oil, right? And I can talk about things that are interesting to those people, which is plantations and, you know, I'm a big World War II buff, you know, growing up in New Guinea, you know, all of that sort of thing. So um, just like the properties, I have an interesting story to tell. Um, that's, you know, that's engaging. Um, that's real. And so people, you know, you build, a, uh, you build a relationship of trust with that. And what have you learned about the buyer side? So when you're dealing with pretty, I mean, a lot of zeros in these transactions, what have you learned about the buyers that you're dealing with to try and get that signature on the contract? I would say that <clears throat> buyers in, in my line of business fall into two really distinct categories. Um, and those would be really genuine, transparent, successful, integral people, like the guy that I sold the ranch to, a guy called Stan Cronkey. Great guy. Most billionaires didn't get to be billionaires because they were stupid or arrogant or small-minded or whatever. 
And in any case, the majority of them that get to that state in life, that, are, that have real money, they're looking to do something good with it. So their intention, as with Stan's intention in buying this ranch, was to turn it around, was to make it better than it was, was to was to freshen it up, was to, you know, it was probably operating at about 25, maybe 35% efficiency. Four years later now, Stan's got that ranch, you know, operating probably at about 85 or 90. Um, but he, you know, there's guys like him, there's a little cowboy in a lot of those guys. They, they want to, you know, they've made it. They want something that, to call their own. And he, at the same time, he's contributing to the cattle industry, you know, the horse industry, the AQHA, American Quarter Horse Association, those sorts of things. So that's one type of buyer. The other type of buyer in in my business is is those that are, you know, not to be trusted. There's guys that are, um, we call them promoters, um, you know, promoters, schemers, scammers. Um, you know, I, I deal with a lot of those kind of, well, I get a lot of those guys because of the type of product that I have. I don't personally deal with them because I have a very strict screening process. If I got come out with a property, before I'll even talk to a, a broker or a principal, I've got to know who they are, who they represent, uh, do they have money. You've got to show me the money before you get onto the ranch, before you get in my truck, before you get in my helicopter, before you get in my data room. If I don't know that you have the money, you don't get to, to talk to me, much less get on the ranch, right? And there's only so many days in the week and weeks in the month, right? So I personally handle, you know, a half a dozen to 10 sort of listings at any one time. So I've got to be really judicious with my time. Um, and I don't treat billionaires any different than, you know, guys that are, you know, buying their first house. Are these the people that they, I think there's a saying in Texas, all hat and no cattle? There's a, there's a lot of those, mate. Yeah. yeah, all hat and no cattle. I don't have time for those guys. And what about selling development stuff, either off the plan or development projects? Is there a different approach that you would take to that or you have in the past? Yeah, I, I, so I don't do a lot of that now. Um, I have done a lot of that. Um, I think the ingredients of a campaign are fairly similar. You know, you have to, you have to be... I think part of selling and selling well anything, whether it's a development or whether it's a big, you know, iconic legacy ranch, I have to believe in it. Um, if you're just being a slick salesman, I think, firstly, I don't want to do it um, because I'm not interested in being a slick salesman. I don't need to be. I get to say no more than I say yes. And so part of my success is that you know, I'll turn down a billionaire with a project or a ranch because I don't like it. You know, I'm not a starving broker. Um, so if he wants to run a campaign a certain way or he wants to be involved in the selling process, I'm not his guy. If I'm going to be involved in a process, I have a 100% success track record and I'm not going to lose that track record just because 
the owner or the seller or the billionaire or the company or the entity thinks that they're smarter than me. If they were smarter than me, they wouldn't be talking to me in the first place. So, and, I, and I'm, I'm saying that without trying to sound arrogant, but that's what I do. So the relationship is really important. Um, I get, you know, probably 10, 15 calls a week from people who want me to look at their project or take on their project. And, um, and like I said, I say no more than I say yes. Yeah. Now, I'll refer out a lot of deals and I'll, I'll craft campaigns for people that, that some of my agents that work for me and some of my staff will execute. And so I'll sort of, you know, be above it. That's the other part of my business. But things that I engage in personally where I'm hands-on, um, you know, there's only, there's only one, there can only be one leader. And what would your advice be for developers who are back here in Australia at the moment, the market is softening and it's getting harder to make deals. Have you got any advice or suggestions for how you would approach the marketing of stock at the, in that kind of market or in that kind of environment? Yeah, look, to, to me, the number one rule, because I've survived in markets that I started in the worst market probably in history, which was sort of that 92, 93, 94, 95 market in Southern California. You know, firstly, we had a horrible economy. We had fires. We had floods. We had, you name it, we had it. Um, you know, banks were getting foreclosed on around the country. Banks were getting rolled up into sort of these REITs and these other things. Um, and, you know, half the time people didn't know, you know, who to pay their mortgage to. Um, one minute they were dealing with, you know, XYZ Bank and the next minute the FDIC came in and foreclosed on them and so on and so forth. So what I've learned, you know, my, my, I've got a few tenants of real estate, but one of the things I've learned in that regard is no matter what condition the market is, be in front of it. Don't chase the market. If you're a seller, if you're a developer or a seller, don't chase the market. You know, take your money off the table. Get in front of the curve, not behind the curve, you know. Um, if you don't take your losses now, you'll take bigger ones down the line. Um, and be innovative. Engage with people who are out of the box and who come up with out-of-the-box solutions. If you've got brokers or representatives working for you just because they're a big-box brand or they say they're an international broker because they happen to be, you know, an agent with an international company, that doesn't mean anything to me, you know. I don't, I don't drink big box brand Kool-Aid and I don't distribute it. You know, when you when you when you're a good broker and you've made your way the way I've made my way, is you do it because you are out of the box, because you colour outside of the lines, um, because you think differently, you act differently. It's about tenacity and perseverance and and figuring out, you know, as my dad used to say, where there's a will, there's a way. So, you know, if you just if you buy and distribute all the postcards or all the things that your, you know, company is selling agents to, you know, try and better themselves, you know, uh, like everybody else, then you'll be like everybody else. Um, but, but to your question, be ahead of the market, uh, be ahead of the curve, whatever that curve is, whether it's going down or whether it's going up, you know, because it never lasts forever in either direction. And, um, uh, and, and, and be creative and offer value. 
and tra- you know transparency, integrity, uh, the type of campaign you put together. You know, people in the world at whatever level, uh, as a as a buyer, as a client, as a consumer, as a customer, they want to be they want to be heard, they want to be respected. Um, you know, and if you don't treat them the way you'd like to be treated, they're probably not going to be a, a, a customer, you know, or a happy client. And certainly they won't be a repeat client. And you mentioned you've got a couple of tenants of real estate. What are some of the other ones? Yeah, so somebody will call me and say, you know, a billionaire or whatever, Um and say I've got this, you know, I've got this ranch, and it's the greatest ranch, and I spent all this money, and I've done this, and I've done that, and it's worth so much more than everybody else's, or whatever. And I here's, and here's what I tell them, and you know, and they'll say, you know, I don't care if it sells in three years or five years, or maybe I don't even, you know, you know, we'll just see what happens. And I say to them, look, I'm not in the see what happens business. Everything I do is calculated, and. And so, you know, we've got to establish a relationship. So here's the tenants. First thing is, you know, there's no such thing as being a little bit pregnant. You're either on the market or you're not. You're either for sale or you're not. Okay? That's number one. So let's figure out if you, you know, what are the, what are the driving factors behind you even having this conversation with me today? That's number one. Number two is I'm really fortunate to be able to do what I do. And after doing it for 30 years in this marketplace, I, I'm really fortunate that I get to choose um, to have some great relationships, successful ones, with successful people like yourselves. And what I'm really saying is, in 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 a different way, in a diplomatic way, is I'm saying I get to say no. So immediately, it's about leveling the playing field. I choose you just as much as you choose me. Most real estate brokers are sort of, you know salivating for a deal and they'll take a listing at any price i don't you know i value it at what i think i can perform to and i just say to them there are guys out there who work for you know work for less and listed for higher then i'm not your guy um you know and i say to people you can have my national rate my my, my regional rate which is six percent you can have my national rate which is eight or you can have my international rate which is ten percent you know, you pick. Generally, they'll pick the national rate, right? But, but I'm not a discount broker. I, I don't need to be. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that, one of the biggest consternations of the real estate business, um, you know, anywhere I think, but certainly in America, is you know, the the age-old commercial commission battle between an agent and a vendor or a seller. I don't have that battle. You know, I, I don't need to. You know. There's, I say to them, you know, one of the other tenants is there's plenty of discount brokers around. Go get one. But if you want the best and you want to sell it under my program and you want to, you know, and I'm going to lead the campaign, I'm your guy. If not, I'm not your guy. It, you know, it's pretty simple. Yeah. yeah. And, and so what would your top tip be for developers out there who are listening, who are thinking of or who would like to take their business to the next level? For developers, uh, you know, again, I think if everything, whatever you do, whatever you build, whatever you advertise, whatever you market, if it if it has inherent value, um, you will you know you'll always do well. If it has inherent value and inherent values, whether you're selling a 
skyscraper or, you know, a block of flats or, you know, a, a residential subdivision or a luxury subdivision, you know, and, and, um, and be current, you know, I mean, the, the, the appetite for generation X's and generation Y's are, you know, it's a lot different than the baby boomer appetizer appetite, which was, you know, bigger, better, more, you know, people, you know, the, the current culture is less is more, you know, um, people want smaller places, um, and people want to be able to, you know, to have value, um, whether it's, you know, whether it's their first time home buyers or whether they're buying a condominium or a townhouse or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point because as a developer, particularly working with some agents, agents generally, generally will take somewhat of a shotgun approach with their marketing, trying to appeal to a broad yeah. range of audiences, you know, which they'll categorize as first home buyers, downsizers or investors that's the, that's their markets whereas i yeah. think you really need to give more thought to who's the likely buyer and really go after them in your marketing really try and talk to them yeah i i i, uh, I agree with you i think that if you know real estate agents put people into a box right if you if you're treating them as uh if you're treating them as an investor or a first timer or a you know or something then you're not really treating if you're categorizing them that way then you're not really treating them as people you're not listening you're not treating them as a young family or a retired couple or a you know whoever whatever their profile really is yeah because i don't think people think of themselves as being a first home buyer or a downsizer or an investor or maybe an investor no. would, but as you say they're people who are looking to buy a property that's going to suit what they want yeah. So. Yeah. You know, I think the other thing is don't be afraid to say no. You know, one of the other golden rules is don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to walk away from a deal. At the same time, do everything you can to be creative and do um, and, and, and be engaging, you know. Don't, you know, if you're a developer and you're selling a subdivision uh, and you've got sort of, an agent there that's just handing out brochures and you know, holding open houses and, you know, and it's all very superficial, um, then, you know, your, your results are probably going to show that. Yeah, I definitely think this is a market where you have to dig deeper and do something different to try and stand out and get those deals across the line. Yeah, and, and different doesn't mean crazy. Different just means, you know, uh, more transparent, more genuine, more you know, genuine, more integral, more moral, more you know, ethical. Because um, especially in 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 a down market, you know, selling at the end of the day is 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 a masterclass in human psychology, and so people want to grab onto, uh, especially in tough times, they want to grab onto. Uh, it's 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 trust, you know, it's values, you know, I can trust this guy. This guy's not just trying to. You know, not just trying to rack up his, you know, his commission. You know, you've got to be able to say to somebody, um, "Yeah, this is this is probably not for you." I bet I can find what you're looking for, but it's not here. It's not in this subdivision, or it's not, you know, in this county or this area or this corner of town, whatever it is. But let let me tell you about this, or let me tell you about that, or have you thought about this, or have you thought about that? Don't just sort of be, you know, the hard sell on on the product that happens to be on the shelf. And chances are, once you start talking to them about those other things, while you're doing that, 
that other person is is thinking, wow, this person really does care. This person really is engaging. And and quite possibly you'll come full circle back to the product at hand. Because if you talk through all of those other opportunities and the pros and cons of those other opportunities, and then you get back to where you're standing in whatever sales room in whatever subdivision or unit complex it might be, now there's a trust that's built, right? You know, oftentimes selling is a is a it's not a game, but it's a it's a um, it's a. I like to think session. of it as a dance. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a it's a it's sometimes a reverse psychology waltz, you know. Yeah. All right, a couple of quick questions. I know you've got to go. Uh, what's the not craziest, but one of the tactics that you did? in one of these uh, high-value campaigns that you went, oh, that was really cool doing that. I don't know, you got a satellite flyover or a helicopter flyover or was there some particular tactic that stands out for you as being pretty special? Yeah. Um, so there's been a few of those. Uh, but early on in my career, I did a deal where, you know, I sold a place and the sellers were really difficult. And when it came time for the buyers to do their final inspections, you know, he locked the gates and wouldn't let anybody in and so on and so forth. So, you know, I hired a helicopter, big one, and um, and we just sort of hovered over the place for about two or three hours. Uh, <laughs> around, we went around every building and every pasture and, you know, um, and uh, every paddock and, and every house and, and uh, inspected it that way and, um, and closed the deal. Did you do the Top Gun style fly past? No, no, but we were we were sort of pretty <laughs> wary about you know getting shot at from below because it, it's Texas after all. <laughs> it's a lot of guns around in Texas. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've had some hairy deals like that. I think another one I did was, um, you know, I it was in the Menendez case. Um, I put out a press release when I, when I took it, I had to shift the positioning of the, of the property right in the marketplace. Cause it had been, it was a white elephant. It was stigmatized, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so I put out a press release that it had to be sold. Um, it was going to be an absolute auction and, um, uh, on X date, um, to satisfy the, the lawyers, you know, in court who needed, um, you know, for the Menendez trial. And, um, you know, often, oftentimes I'll do things to flush people out of the weeds, and um, and that's one of those cases. So we never went to auction. We ended up with a buyer. So is auction a secondary strategy in the U.S. or one that's not used Very, that often? Yeah, it's, it's really a secondary or even, even you know, third or fourth, you know. Auctions aren't seen. Auctions here have a very negative con- connotation. I'll do things like call for offers, uh, I'll draw a line in the sand, um, you know, that kind of thing. But um, uh, very rarely will I do an auction. All right. And my other question was around uh, when you sold the Wagoner Ranch for $720 million US dollars and you pick up your paycheck, did you buy yourself a little toy or something of interest as a little token? I did. I bought two things. Yeah, I bought, a, uh, I bought an old uh, Willie's Jeep. And I bought a new pair of R.M. Williams boots. <laughs> the boots were more expensive than the Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good to see you're still maintaining a connection to good Australian uh, footwear. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Very nice. Well, 
Bernie Utridge, thank you so much for being on the Property Developer Podcast. It's been so awesome talking to you and I really appreciate your time. Pleasure. I'll send you um, I'll send you an absolute pleasure and I appreciate you doing it and I'll send you a, um, a video link we just put out. Just yes. Fun. Yep. And if people want to find out more about you or about the business, where should they go? Icon.global, www.icon.global. Yeah, you can see some fairly hefty ranches and large properties on that side. <laughs> We've got something for everyone, mate. <laughs> so come on in. Uh, all right, Bernie. Thanks for talking with us. You're very welcome. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Okay, there you go. Sales agent extraordinaire Bernie Utridge sharing how he goes about selling unique high-end properties. I really enjoyed hearing about how Bernie approaches each campaign and how he is looking for that angle that will help make the property jump out in the market. Here are three things I took away from our conversation. One, every property has a buyer. I love Bernie's view that the property market is like the car market. There's an ask for every seat. So there's certainly someone out there for your development stock. The way Bernie goes about finding that buyer is to cast a wide net, create a competitive marketing environment and manufacture a situation conducive to selling a property as fast as practical. He likes to generate interest over a 90 to 120 day period, get things to a fever pitch and close the deal. So give some thought to how you could look to do something similar in your next campaign. Two, find the unique angle or story that will help the property stand out. Bernie mentioned that he likes to design campaigns around the story or stories of the property he is marketing to help bring it to the market in a way that creates interest and ultimately a deal. He said every property is different and he likes to build a custom campaign around it. Even if the property has a stigma, like being a murder scene, you can be clear about it and make it work to your advantage. Three, be a good listener. I found it interesting that Bernie works on being a good listener. He said that people want to be heard and respected and that if you want repeat customers, it is wise to listen and respond to what people tell you. It reminded me of what past guest and former FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss calls the black swans. A little piece of information that can turn a negotiation on its head and lead to an extraordinary outcome. So why not practice being an active listener in your next conversation and see how it goes? And speaking of Chris Voss, you may enjoy going back to our conversation in episode 33 and listening to the many nuggets of gold that he provided around negotiating and securing better deals, including this advice about how to be an active listener. Feed it back to them, paraphrase it, how they feel about it, till they say that's right. You then begin to move forward at light speed as soon as the other side feels heard. So many problems are eliminated. So many barriers come down. So much cooperation ha- happens as a result of that. There really was a lot of great tips in that discussion with Chris, so I certainly think it is worth your time revisiting episode 33. Okay, don't forget to email me if you're interested in being mentored on how to develop property. Drop me a line via justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I can send you some information on the program. Also, catch me on Instagram and Facebook for my latest news and videos under Property Developer Podcast. You can also post a comment on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. And of course, all the past episodes of the show can be found at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, may you one day make a billion dollar property deal. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.